Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings podcast, episode number 44. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman. With me, as always, every week is St. Mitch Will I Am Davis. What's up? Hey, how's it going? It's going good. Um, I am in Lake Luzerne, New York, in the middle of the woods, uh, in the Adirondack Mountains, and um, I'm hoping that my internet holds so we don't have too much uh, difficult time, but I am like in the middle of nowhere. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's good to be in the middle of nowhere with, with bad bad signal and all just to get away from it all. I, I had that last weekend. I, I was in Atlanta with a, my wife's family, with like a big family reunion in the woods. And I guess it's Fairburn, Atlanta. And uh, literally, you go into the woods like where this road curves and you, and there's nothing. I mean, <laughs> as far as like landline signal, yeah, but as far as, you know, phones, is you get nothing out there, which is, yeah. Yeah, like I said, it's, sometimes it's good to be somewhere like that where you, you don't have all that, so. Yeah, sometimes. definitely. <laughs> so it's been cool. Um, we have back with us again for the third time, Brian Clark. What's up, Brian? Man, glad to be back. It's been too long. I know, man. We're glad to have you back. Um, I think you're going to have some special insight into the music that we're going to listen to uh, on this show, which is going to be one album from Ornette Coleman and two from John Coltrane. So this is going to be our jazz saxophone show, basically. Mm. Uh, And it's cool because, I mean, you know, again, we're going in alphabetical order, but it's sometimes interesting how certain things fall right next to each other yeah um, yeah yeah uh in the case of these two um really active at around the same time of course ornette coleman's still alive and coltrane left us a while ago mm-hmm. but uh um yeah we're gonna start with uh, ornette coleman's the shape of jazz to come and then we're gonna listen to john coltrane blue train and then finally john coltrane a love supreme uh and let's start with the uh, Ornette Coleman. So, uh, The Shape of Jazz to Come. This album released in 1959. Uh, a little bit about Ornette Coleman. Um, he was born in 1930 in Fort Worth, Texas. So, he's a Texan. We always like that. We're all tech. We're all Texans here. Yep. <laughs> That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, he got started very, very early in high school. Um, played with some other musicians that went on to be sort of notable musicians um, in high school. Uh, He made his way out to LA um, and, you know, started playing around. And from what I read, um, even early on, he was sort of an adventurous player, liked to play uh, in the cracks, they say, or outside the harmony. And a lot of players kind of shied away from playing with him because they thought he sounded, you know, out of tune, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, but and the fact that he played a plastic horn. That's right. Yeah, he played a plastic horn, <laughs> um, which is uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. He played a plastic horn like like all the way up until like the 90s or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, so I guess he just, I, I guess the story is he bought a plastic horn because he couldn't afford uh, a metal horn, but then he, he got to like the sound of a plastic horn. Um, mm. And uh, anyway, in the, in his early career, uh, Paul Blay was an early supporter of him. We talked about Paul Blay earlier on the podcast. Um, yeah. What did you get? What do you guys is, I don't know, impressions of Ornette Coleman. Let's show you start. Um, definitely, you know, huge as far as I guess what you would consider the the avant-garde jazz sound or free jazz sound. It, it, I mean, a huge, you know, milestone player in, in that sense where, you know, he he took so much, you know, what of what he felt in music and, and like you said, kind of played inside and outside of the music, you know, and and kind of, you know, changed a lot in that sense. Um, and I, and I, and that's, that's amazing in the sense to where you think of so many players now that, that are like him and that there was really not that much like that before him. You know, I mean, that's for me that, that, that concept in itself is, is amazing. You know, that he was one of the first to kind of, you know, stretch out on that, that plane, so to speak, you know, influence so many people. I mean, obviously, you know, Coltrane was one of them, you know, in, in a lot of senses where they were, you know, kind of coming up in the same time. But, uh, you know, in today's day, I think of John Zorn is one guy who I'm pretty sure, you know, was definitely influenced by by Coleman in, in a big way, you know, where, you know, he just kind of, you know, was able to create something totally new and, and outside of the, I guess, I guess the bebop form of what jazz had become up to that point, you know, the structured form of jazz. Yeah, yeah. Brian, what do you think? Brian, are you there? Yeah, hang on. Um, sorry, man. I'm trying to get my family to, to be quiet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't hear him. <laughs> microphone on mute, but I mean, it's like I was, I was trying to yell at them, you know, from a farther up the other side of the house anyway. And I was trying to tell them, hey, I'm doing a podcast because they've been out and I haven't had a chance to tell them yet. So anyway, so if I get interrupted, we may you may have to do a slight edit or something if if you if you if you're editing. If you're not, well then we'll just let it all hang out. But, okay. <laughs> but as far as Ornette, you know, the interesting thing that and he means a lot to me, if anything, as um, a conceptualist and what he brought to the language of jazz because you have to keep in mind as you mentioned shape of um, of shape of jazz to come came out in 1959 and 1959 was sort of the height of post bop you know hard bop everybody's really interesting they're slightly starting to move away especially sax players are starting to move away from straight bebop that was really um, started with Bird, you know, in that sense, and with Dizzy and that that side of playing. So everyone's really interested in outlining changes upon changes, you know. So you're, they're making chord substitutions within chord substitutions. You had, you know, standard types of harmonic um, cliches like two five ones, which are, you know, the jazz equivalent of a one four five in... Um, rock music and in blues and these had been developed where most of the jazz musicians were also playing changes within those changes so um 
it was moving increasingly towards a vertical concept, a harmonic-based concept, even though they may be playing things in single-note ideas. So the interesting thing about Ornette Coleman is that he comes along and he basically blows all that out of the water. And he's more interested in what his inner voice is and finding those lines within his sort of inside. He's going internal and just trying to be uh, as melodic as he can within this post-bop or late-bop period. So he obliterates chord changes. And when he finds the band, you know, it's essentially, there is no chordal instrument in his in his makeup. So he's got two horns, bass and drums. Very, very difficult to convey a, a, a clear harmonic uh, type of, of thing. Uh, here we go. Now, let me go get rid of my family. Hang on a second. Sorry, guys. <laughs> let me go get rid of my family. That's like, yeah, no, that, that that's the really quote. <laughs> that's the quote the of the way, episode right there. Yeah, the way it should, but that's that's pretty good. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Um yeah, I don't I don't know how long it's gonna take him to get rid of his family, but um <laughs> But yeah, that was that was the thing that um that really I latched on to as well. Uh basically uh Coleman not having a piano or kind of any kind of instrument that can play chords. Yeah. And so he's no longer constrained, you know, with, uh, there's, you know, if we, when you have a pianist laying down chords, um, that kind of outlines, you know, what pitches you basically want to use in your soloing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, uh, if you don't have that, if all you have is a baseline and nothing else and nothing laying out chords, um, I would think it would, you know, open you up to a lot more freedom of melody yeah. and let more freedom of, you know, what pitches you can play and and uh yeah. Okay. Sorry, dudes. Yeah, no problem. Did you get rid of them? I did. I got rid of them. <laughs> They're all on ice. Um <laughs> No, yeah. I I had to I had to tell them. So, all right, cool. Um so I, I missed whatever you guys were talking about. Well, so I was just that. I was just kind of talking about what you were talking about. That's kind of what I grabbed onto as well. Um, that you know he he basically got rid of the chords, and um, you know when you have chords, when you have someone laying out chords, those are kind of it kind of lays out a basic structure of pitches that you use when you uh, solo, and when you don't have chords anymore, you just have a bass line. I would think that it would open up way more possibilities you know pitch possibilities to use in your soloing and yeah but the interesting thing about all of that is that there, there there's two problems one you have a problem with obviously the audience and its expectations and uh, and that was something that Ornette really was able to reap the benefit of early on in the 60s when free jazz really kind of came into its own and then by the end of uh, the 60s, it was clearly out of fashion again. People were more interested in having um, harmonic expectations, shall we say. So that's the one hurdle that he had to overcome the first time. But the second one was also within the band itself. It required an open mind, uh, especially from jazz musicians. And, you know, when you spend your entire life really trying to negotiate harmonic intricacies and be able to and be able to improvise over that you have a lot of uh, 
challenges there. And it was not uncommon. In fact, I remember reading about one gig that they did in Louisiana, and I can't remember. I might have been Shreveport. But um, after the gig, the band basically beat up Ornette Coleman. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> because... You know, because he, uh, because they didn't enjoy his music a- at all. And here's the problem as a jazz musician. Here's the problem that you run into on stage. If you're playing free jazz, then everybody's looking for a leader. And if the leader means whoever is taking a solo at that moment, that's fine. But you don't know where they're going. Mm-hmm. And you have to sort of agree to disagree. In, in, in some places it's different if you give me a harmonic you know template like a blues form or something a 12 bar blues well anybody can get together and start making music at that point because we know the chord changes and and I can go way outside of that tonal expectations and play completely atonal music if I wanted to over a 12 bar blues that is in a key but the expectation is, is that I'm trying to generate tension and I will eventually return to the harmonic um, implications. And that can't happen when the entire music is free. And so it's very difficult. So what? here's the Ornette's template in a nutshell, which is obliterate the chord change and basically play a melody. And that's your head. And then after that, everyone's free to improvise. And this is where the cacophony starts to ensue. And then when we listen to Coltrane and and this time period of 1959, you're going to see that Coltrane's blues-based on these early recordings mostly. And he's starting to, again, think vertical with his own special uh, chord changes that basically derive from the bridge of Have You Met Miss Jones, which later became Giant Steps. Huh. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's ch- let's check out this first track just so we can sort of hear what we're talking about. Cool. Um, this uh, first track that we're going to hear is "Peace" off the album. Um, I I don't know. I mean, this is kind of a kind of a cool tune, kind of laid back. Uh, I mean, this I don't know what I was expecting. I mean, I guess uh, the Ornette Coleman that I've heard up till this point is the more free jazz stuff from later on. Um, this was a lot more structured sounding than I was expecting. You know, when I yeah. first, when I first threw it on, um, it doesn't sound nearly as, is out there as like his later stuff, but it's definitely yeah. going towards that, you know, going that direction. direction. Yeah. Um, but this is kind of a cool, you know, it's like kind of a cool sort of laid back head and, um, you know, the solos are kind of laid back in this one. It, it doesn't sound sporadic or crazy to me at all. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have anything to, you know, short to say about this before we play it? No, I, I pretty much agree with, with what you, what you just kind of came with where, I mean, I've, I've heard some of Ornette's stuff that's, that's much more radical than this song, but like you said, it, it, it kind of is, is giving you an impression that that's the direction he's headed in. I mean, this is this is really like the tip of the iceberg in a lot of ways, because I I thought that, too. I was like, well, this is really not as as I guess you would call crazy as some of the other things that I've heard him do or or what I even expected. But still, like you said, the the spirit of what he was leaning towards is is definitely here. I mean, where he's he's kind of gone totally away from the regular structure and harmony of what a lot of people considered, you know, jazz music to be. And I, I think too, kind of like what, what 
Brian was talking about in, in the where the expectation of the audience, you know, and, and that's that's really so crucial in a lot of this to where if you're really not playing to anybody, you're sort of just playing for yourself, you know, in a lot of ways. And I think Ornette had to really establish that initially to where really this is for me and maybe the musicians I'm playing with. And if anybody else, you know, is digging this, then that's just gravy, you know. And I, I think he really had to play for himself a lot of the times where he was the only person that was maybe digging what he heard. You know, he, he is an individual. And I mean, that sometimes that has to be good enough, you know, so to speak, especially if what you're listening to is is really far off from what is considered the normal structure, so to speak. So, yeah. Um, okay, let's just check this out. This is Peace by Ornette Coleman. And we just heard Peace from Ornette Coleman, and we're going to move on to his song, uh, Chronology. And uh, I should mention the players on this. This is uh, The other players on this album are Don Cherry, trumpet, 
Dude, how many times have we talked about Don Cherry now on this podcast? A bunch. Uh, quite a few. Yeah, <laughs> a bunch of times. Um, Charlie Hayden on bass and Billy Higgins on drums. Um, yeah. So chronology. Uh, this is a much faster paced tune um, <clears throat> uh, with an opening trumpet solo from Don Cherry. Uh, the, the part of this that I just, I don't know, just made me smile that I just kind of liked um is at the very very end when the head comes back and you think they're done i mean you think that the head comes back okay you think okay they're going to play the head again and it's going to be over and then they play the head and then coleman just launches into this you know some sax pyrotechnics like warp speed just sort of up and down for a few bars and then they go back into the head and then it sort of finishes but it's just kind of this little unexpected moment that made me kind of crack a smile um yeah what'd you guys think of chronology brian what would you think oh. um chronology again it's it's one of those things that's indicative of this period of jazz and i think to really appreciate what ornette was really bringing to the overall historical timeline and development of jazz you got to keep that year sort of in your mind of 1959 and again chronology is it sounds like a parker head right and you know that's sort of where it is it could be ornithology or billy's bounce or you know any of those great charlie parker heads that are highly complex and have a lot of rhythmic turns and melodic devices in them but the one thing that's lacking of course is the harmonic implications and so what Ornette basically did with chronology is give you a really nice head. It sets the listener up for an expectation. And this is the, one of the things that I think is so fascinating. And one of the reasons why most people don't enjoy Ornette Coleman on a daily listening, they can appreciate him from an intellectual standpoint and certainly from maybe a, a, a historical contribution, but a daily listening, I don't know a lot of folks that just basically go, yeah, I listen to Ornette Coleman all the time because it's so free and the, the one thing that i would say when you listen to this track or you know go back and listen to it again is listen to the interplay between the bass and your instrument it doesn't matter whether it's it's uh trumpet or saxophone but what you'll find is, is that charlie hayden is is searching and he's the guy that's got to pin stuff down he's the wheels of this whole train and he's just searching for something to try to pin something down on. And he's, I think he's caught. I think, I think he's at a catch-22. Because if he starts playing something melodic, then he sets up an implication for harmony. You know, if he starts playing a blues line uh, on his bass or starts really outlining harmonic changes, that it, no one's, everyone's agreed that there is no harmonic changes. So what do you do as a bassist? It's easy when you're a soloist. But as a bassist, I think he has the hardest job in that band. By far, he's got the yeah, hardest job. In yeah. Mm. Well, man, yeah, it's, uh, it's tough because, in, in, especially from the listener's standpoint, as soon as he lays down a bass note, that I mean, immediately in our own ears, we sort of create, uh, you know, sort of a tonal anchor, you know. Yeah. Well, and what you'll hear him do is he'll play a lot of a lot of like whole steps, a lot of whole tone based types of things, and really start to center around tritones and other things that try to break up. The 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 even the implied even if he's not intending it, um, concept of a triad there 
that type of stuff. You got to be, you know, aware of that. And it goes against what a bass player would normally do when they start walking bass lines, which is to basically connect chords and make them move in a smooth way to where they feel really nice. So a good, good thing to do would be to listen to chronology and then go in and listen to um, Billy's Bounce from Charlie Parker and listen to the two. Now, granted, Charlie Parker, you know, was earlier, um, but you can hear the difference between bop and something that sounds like bop. And and it, I just think it's a fascinating record. I, don't get me wrong; I'm not down on Ornette Coleman. You know, I'm not I'm not getting down on Ornette Coleman, man. I I actually dig what he does, and I I really appreciate what they. Do. This is sort of what I my students over at Belmont when we start talking about things is I just say that jazz did in 100 years roughly what it took classical music 500 years to do <laughs> and yeah. and this this period of, of of Ornette right now represents that that Viennese school from Berg and Webern and of course the daddy Schoenberg and those the daddy that that yeah he's the daddy the progenitor um but but the idea is that he is um you know he's representing that in jazz because it's totally free and even though it's not serial or as academic as some of the uh, classical versions of it uh it is nonetheless represents the same thing it's a break with tonality but he still keeps the same trappings that we would normally expect tonal music to exist in. So in that way, it's exactly the same as Schoenberg and Berg and yeah. Webern and, and the later. So it's, uh, it's interesting parallel. Give, give me one second. What's up, man? Okay. Sorry, guys. That was one of my composition students asking about his, his project. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> asking if he could use drum set. I said, of course. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, um, Mitch, what did you think of this tune chronology? Well, I, you know, I was thinking about what what Brian was saying in the the whole issue of, of how this is just a period where things are changing so much and so fast, and in the sense that you know they kind of had moments where you know, like you said, it it was a lot of things going on spontaneously like like towards the end of that song like you said where he he just kind of you know goes totally away from what they were doing originally and i you know i think this is just one of those things where you know if you if you were ready for something different and you were you were trying to get away from the the regular structure of music you know this is awesome you know even if maybe right off you don't really kind of get it so to speak you know, it was it was just really cool to have something that was trying to change the whole dynamic of of how the music was being presented. And I mean, that's the one thing that I I really get from Ornette Coleman altogether, where he was just ready to to do something really new and really different and just change the whole the whole way the game was played, so to speak. You know, if you if you would call it a game, you know, but yeah. Um, but that's what I, that's what I get. That's what I get, especially listening to this tune. I, that's one of the things that I was I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. The the thing that's interesting to me, and this is just kind of a comment about Ornette Coleman's music, not not particularly this track, is the 
just the climate of the time and the general uh, acceptance of of experimentation of the time that uh, you know people were interested in experimenting not just in jazz but in all kinds of music i mean i think it's amazing that ornette coleman's on this trajectory you know to yeah. free jazz and as a result gets a four record deal with atlantic records you know that would that wouldn't happen now yeah would not um and stuff like that happened all the time during this time you know record executives then back then sort of had well they're doing some interesting stuff you know let's let's sign them and see what happens you know it's just not yeah it just doesn't happen now yeah it's like frank zappa talked about that one time how so so many record execs back in the day especially were, were much more willing to take a chance and then ornette coleman was definitely i guess what you would consider a a chance i mean this could really work or this could really not work you know and nowadays you know that that is really not the case i mean people are so much more or less inclined especially at bigger labels to to take a chance on music that's not guaranteed to draw i guess you, what you would call a response or a return i mean you know you know some some are but most are not you know yeah. and uh you know that that's what i'm that's what i'm appreciating about about coleman as as an artist in general is that he was just one of those individuals that was that was definitely trying to take chances and stretch outside of, of the norm, you know, which, you know, that, I mean, if you wanted to be in the norm, that's fine, but, you know, let's occasionally, let's do something different. Let's try to break some new ground, which he, he most definitely did. And I, I think the players on the album, obviously we talked about Don Cherry and then, and Charlie Hayden. I mean, he just had a group of people around him who were just, they were very mindful of that, you know, and I think very prepared for that, you know, in a sense to where they they'd already kind of had their own you know mind for experimentation and, and and doing things outside of what was considered you know the, the structure of, of regular music so to speak yeah 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 um, a, go ahead well i was just gonna say there's a really famous um anecdote from roy eldridge and uh, i remember you know hearing this a long time ago but he said he was talking about how uh, what he thought people were asking what he, what he would think about Ornette he said he said you know I'd listen to him all kinds of ways I'd listen to him high I'd listen to him cold sober I even played with him and I think he's jiving baby <laughs> <laughs> but I don't really agree with that I mean um, I think Ornette is a, is a sensitive musician who has a great lyrical sense about him I think he can write an amazing uh, melody and I think he's a really, really gifted improviser. It's just you have to let go of uh, those preconceived expectations of what you think jazz is. And and it's I think in this case, in a weird irony, it's harder for the musicians to do that than it is the audience. Oh yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I think that's I think that's true. You were talking about the parallels with classical music and the second Viennese school and all that. I think it's the same in classical music. I think it's e even harder for the musicians to play that music. You know, a lot of them hate it. Absolutely hate it, you know, because it's really hard. And at the end of the day, after they put in all that work, you know, it's, it's difficult to be rewarded if that makes sense. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah it, it does. I, I can see the frustration is where you, you, you may have somebody just throwing their hands up going, I really don't know what I'm doing, you know. And and I mean, you know, maybe even, you know, Ornette at, at some point was like, you know what, I don't either, but that's okay, <laughs> you know. I mean, the the wanting to know what what's what's my responsibility, where am I supposed to be, what am I supposed to be doing? And I mean, not knowing that as a musician, I, I'm sure that can that can drive you crazy, you know, in, yeah. in a in a musical piece. I mean, I, I'm not a musician. I mean, but. I, I still, you know, not really knowing what I'm supposed to do in anything, especially something as involved as this, I, I can see why. I mean, someone would, would come to terms of where it's like, you know, I'm, I may have to whoop this dude's ass if, if we don't figure out something <laughs> in a minute. So Yeah. Well, if, if anybody wants to just sort of see um, maybe a slightly different perspective of, of Charlie, I mean, of uh, Ornette Coleman, I would recommend... Um, checking out, you know, Matheny, Pat Matheny, the guitar player, ha has always been influenced in that way by uh, Ornette, and he's he's made a point to do Ornette songs like Lonely Woman and Long Years and some of these other classic tunes. But he actually did a record with Ornette called Song X, and it's got Charlie Hayden and Jack DeJohnette on drums. And if you want to sort of, it, those would be two good bookends for. Uh, and Ornette Coleman, you know, if you're curious about him, is, is listen to the first album, that one. Well, it actually wasn't his first album, Shape of Jazz to Come, was his second one. first one was called Something Else. But um, but this one, the second album, was the one that certainly helped him, you know, become solidified onto the jazz scene and in and, and infamy in some people's uh, opinions. But And then you can listen to something that was done, you know, two, almost three decades later, and um, and listen to uh, Matheny play with him later on, and it that's a really cool album. Cool, man. All right. Well, on that note, let's listen to uh, the final track from Ornette Coleman. This is Chronology. <laughs>
And we just heard Chronology of Ornette Coleman. And we're going to move on to our two albums uh, from John Coltrane. And the first album we're going to listen to is Blue Train, released in 1957. Um, This was recorded for Blue Note Records. And I guess the story goes that he went to Blue Note Records uh, looking for old recordings of saxophonist Sidney Bechet and got to talking to the owner of Blue Note and was convinced to record an album for Blue Note. Uh, was given a small advance and a small contract and uh, recorded this album in one day. Um, wow. And released it on, uh, you know, in 1957 on Blue Note. It was a huge success for a jazz record. Um, and, uh, yeah, a little bit about John Coltrane. He was born 1926 in Hamlet, North Carolina, and made his way to Philadelphia in the early 40s, where he sort of uh, freelanced as a musician. Um, joined the Navy in 1945 and then returned in 46. But I think he had his big break um, in 55 when he got a call from Miles Davis and started working with Miles Davis and also a little later with Thelonious Monk in the 50s. Um, yeah, what are you guys' impression of Blue Train? What about Brian? What do you think of Blue Train? Well, I mean, Blue Train is definitely um, one of the great great albums of John Coltrane and there are many great albums from John Coltrane but this is clearly one of the best uh, of his in my opinion this is one of my favorite of his um, discography but it, it again you'll you'll see that um, remember what I was saying if we kind of reference it back to what was going on at the time where you're sort of out uh, of the Charlie Parker straight hard bop bebop stuff, and you're starting to see people take more experiments with, um, with basically trying to make new chord changes within existing chord changes, and there's no better template to do that than blues, and that's what the majority of this record is. But you'll start to see that, um, or here I should say, that Coltrane is starting to think more vertically, and he's starting to think about doing two five chord progressions which is essentially a minor chord which would be the two chord in a particular key going to the five chord again this is the most common progression in jazz he starts to take that and starts to superimpose it in different types of intervallic based cycles and so you'll see this in moments notice which is on this uh, album and um you'll start to hear that coltrane's really thinking vertically and you you, you can feel his his drive in this it's polished it's solid rhythmically it's it's right in the pocket his tone is amazing i mean this album is is definitely one of the greats of the whole jazz canon oh yeah yeah mitch what do you think uh it, it is a, a tremendous record i mean just the 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 sound of of that opening horn on on blue train is it's iconic. I mean, you know, it's just one of those jazz records that that sticks with you. I mean, you know, whether you really love jazz or, or or not even a fan of jazz at all, it's just one of those. It's just one of those records that that means so much, you know, in in the stamp of jazz, so to speak. I mean, John Coltrane, you know, and I mean to to think that this record was recorded in one day is ridiculous in itself you know it just it's a testament to the man 
how talented he was and and what a visionary he was. I mean, he had so much going on inside of him, I think, to where, you know, it it was just brilliant in, in the sense that he could make music so good, you know, on the spot like that. I mean, I really don't I really don't even understand it, to be honest with you. Um and I mean to 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 kind of progress from this point on to a more freer style. I mean, it, it's it's just really great to kind of look back. I mean, in the last couple of weeks that we've been preparing for this, looking back at his full body of work, I mean, you know, his influence is it just cannot be denied. I mean, um, you know, as as far as the way he influenced not only jazz musicians but musicians like Carlos Santana, who the guy swears by John Coltrane. I mean, he 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 reveres him like like Bob Marley and, and Marvin Gaye and so many other musical giants. I mean, he's up there on that so-called Mount Rushmore of, of musical giants, if you will, John Coltrane is. And then the way he played and the sounds that he made with his horn. I mean, you know, it, it really is, it's hard to sit in one show and, and really deal with Coltrane. I mean, I, I thought the Beatles would be tough, but really coming into the show, thinking about doing this and talking about John Coltrane. I mean, we have one more album that we're going to do on the next podcast. It, it's really hard. You know, it's, it's, he's just one of those guys that's so deep, you know, and the way he played and the style that he played and the spirit that he brought to the music. I mean, you know, I could go on and on and I, and I won't, but I could. <laughs> <laughs> Let me add one other thing that's kind of cool that most people may not really realize, but um, Coltrane had a mentor, especially from this early time period, and you're you're seeing the end of it. Um, But from about 1946 to 1950, Coltrane actually studied with a guitarist named Dennis Sandoli back in Philadelphia. And Sandoli's main thing was he introduced Coltrane into theory beyond chords and scales. He was the guy who exposed it to music of other cultures, which we'll see later on if you follow Coltrane's career, that that becomes a big part, especially when you get into after he leaves Atlantic Records and Blue Note and he gets into Impulse and he starts doing the much celebrated live at the Village Vanguard. You'll start to see that a lot of these um, Indian-based raga type of approaches which again he he goes the other direction in this case he goes to a harmonic integration over a static chord rather than trying to imply chords over chords in a vertical way but Dennis and Dolly was actually um, taught some other folks of note one was uh, James Moody um, Michael Brecker and uh, other guitar players uh, most notably Jim Hall Pat Martino and Joe DiOrio who was my teacher Wow. So there you go. You know, when I came out um, to do an audition at USC, it was probably in 2000, so the spring of 2000, and you were, you were there uh, doing a, you know, your degree in uh, jazz guitar. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sat in on a class with Joe DiOrio. I don't know if you remember, but I sat in on a class that he did. And it was absolutely i mean it was mind-blowingly brilliant i mean it was it was worth the entire trip and the the cost of the ticket and everything just to sit in that one class i mean it was amazing yeah man yeah i I mean 
Yeah, Joe's like the Yoda of jazz guitar. I mean, I've, I see, I got to study with him for eight years, and and I've got books and books and books of just master classes and private lessons, and you know, he he was so he still is, but he's so deep, and I that's that's the well, that's one of the wells that I always go back to, and try to advance my language. I'm always going back and taking Joe concepts and like, yeah, I need to I need to shed this. I need to really devote some love to this and, and check this out. But it was like that. Every lesson I had with him, he was basically like, Brian, let me show you this. You, you ever think about this? Because this is amazing. Let me show you. He, he would do that. And and I would just go, wow, I just had a 30-minute lesson that's going to take me three years to understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one moment I remember in that in that class there was like i don't know four or five guitarists sitting around and and you're right he was sitting in front of you guys on a stool like yoda i mean that's kind of what he looked like and um he ran off this this amazing like amazingly technical super fast line like up the guitar neck and then it was like you know i think everyone in the room was like what did he just do like what that just blew everybody's mind and then somebody said do that again like he just came up with it and he didn't he just uh, he was like okay and then he just executed it exactly note for note what he just did perfectly you know it was like it just i don't know just i think everyone in that room just felt like oh oh my god i suck at that moment <laughs> you know um <laughs> So well, I just I said I saw that just to kind of point out that it's kind of interesting that um, you know guitarists and uh, there's there's been a new body of evidence that even suggests that that Parker uh, Charlie Parker was actually influenced by great jazz guitar guys that really started to get him thinking about playing Bop we know as Bop and um, and so it was an interesting guitar correlation because it's because guitar players listen to horn players mostly now, you know, because they've got great lines. But in the day, guitarists were influencing horn players. And this relationship between guitar and saxophone is, is very harmonious. It's sort of the yin and the yang type of thing. Um, but, you know, as far as it applies to Coltrane, I mean, Coltrane definitely went both ways. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, he's one of the great jazz icons as Mitch said you know it's, it's the same thing I mean that is Coltrane is definitely one of the gold standards that you're going to compare playing to in fact I, I played four Coltrane tunes last night you know we, we do a, a weekly jazz a gig I have here in Nashville and you know we played Giant Steps all the great you know Coltrane tunes but but yeah, it's uh, he's just such an amazing, amazing guy, and I love the fact that he went vertical and he went horizontal later on, and then he went avant-garde, and then he became more closely in tune with um, Ornette Coleman, although he was ten years after, you know, the shape of of jazz to come. So there's a there's a very interesting synergy between uh, and just by happenstance, an interesting synergy that's happening between pairing Coltrane and Ornette Coleman uh, together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's check out this first track um, from Blue Train. It's the title track, Blue Train, by John Coltrane. (laughs) ¶¶ 
And we just heard Blue Train. And uh, we're going to move on to Moments Notice. Brian, you mentioned earlier, there's one uh, sort of question I had in my notes um, for you uh, on Moments Notice, but I think you already answered it. Basically, I said, is there the same sort of harmonic movement in this as in Giant Steps? Um, yeah, there is. Um, Moments Notice is essentially, it's it's not quite in the same um I should say fullest form of expression that um, that that Giant Steps was, but uh, Moments Notice definitely has this sort of what we call Coltrane changes, and Coltrane changes are essentially um, taking two fives and moving around in symmetrical relationships. So. Specifically, it would be taking a two-five in one key, and then going up a major third and playing a two-five in that key, and then going up another major third and playing a two-five in that key. And then if you go up one more, well, then you've reached, you come back to where you've started. So in music, a major third interval and a major third interval, and yet another third interval, we would relate that harmonically as a augmented triad. And so what Coltrane does is start to take two fives and put them together in major third intervals. Yeah, and so that yeah, that kind of <clears throat> I don't know the kind of beginnings of that idea you can kind of hear in moments notice. Um, yeah, and this is kind of a like an up tempo hard bop tune. Um, also during this period, I think um, you start to hear the the development of his kind of sheets of sound style, you know, where he, he's basically just running up and down maybe hundreds of notes, you know, per, per minute really, or, um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have something? Yeah, to, I'm not, I'm certainly sound, not. Go ahead. I was just going to say that, that sheet of sound idea. I don't know why these horn guys are rehearsing every time, but it's it's funny. Uh, <laughs> you should probably preface this by telling you know the folks who are listening to the podcast that it's it's actually happening live and you can't control it because the brass ensemble is rehearsing outside. Of yeah, yeah. So so yeah, for the listeners, I'm uh, I'm currently teaching at this music camp in Lake Luzerne, New York. I'm in a cabin with windows that won't close, <laughs> and I'm about. I'm about 50 yards from the outdoor stage, and on the stage right now is the brass ensemble rehearsing Gabrielli. So there you go. I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it's funny, but it's not, you know? <laughs> well, what I was going to say, say about the sheet of sound, I, that, that's Coltrane running vertical ideas where he's just taking arpeggios within a particular key and he's playing them in a very rapid succession, ascending and descending. And so the way it sounds to our ear is that there's just all these notes that are spilling out. It's not necessarily melody that you're hearing. What you're really hearing is, is very quick arpeggios. And an arpeggio is a horizontal representation of a chord. So rather than all of the chords happen, or all the tones in the chord happening together at the same time, you parse them out one by one. So this is what Coltrane's doing. Yeah, and this was kind of the the tradition, right? That was all started by uh, Charlie Parker, that right? Yeah, yeah. That's basically the device of pop. Yeah, but strangely enough, Parker was very influenced by Ravel and Stravinsky, a lot of 
Uh oh. I think we're losing. <laughs> I think we lost Brian. Hold on. Uh oh. No, I'm here. All okay, right. <laughs> you 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 completely trailed off on on my end. Um, oh, I was saying that Parker was influenced and aware, very aware of the sort of exotic elements of the 20th century and mid 20th century with Ravel, Stravinsky, and Debussy and the pentatonic bass usage and all that. So that's where a lot of those um, types of chord resolutions are coming from, and strange enough, all the way back to Bach. Okay. <laughs> hey, they, they sound pretty good. Yeah, yeah was a, letting, him, letting him finish there, there, Gabrielle. Um, <laughs> yeah, Mitch, what do you think of Moments Notice? Uh, man, I mean, I, Brian pretty much summed up a lot of what, what I was thinking. I mean, you know, the, the thing about this is I, I think he was really setting a new standard for for a lot of jazz musicians to follow and then the style that he played and uh you know i really that's really all i have to say i mean we, we can go on to play the track i mean because you know the, the the music really speaks for itself i mean you know coltrane was i mean he was really really sort of like setting a new mold for what what jazz music could be and, and the way he played with harmonies and notes i mean and this record is it's it's such a good good example of, of how jazz was changing in that in that era. So um and that's that's really all I, I have to say, you know. All right, awesome. Yeah, let's listen to this. This uh, last track from Blue Train. This is Moments Notice.
heard Moments Notice from John Coltrane. And we're going to move on to the second album of Coltrane, A Love Supreme, uh, released in 1965 <laughs> with a fanfare. <laughs> um, well deserved fanfare. <laughs> um, yeah, A Love Supreme. Um, you know, my first exposure to this album wasn't through Coltrane. Um, it was when Mitch was when we were working at the record store. And remember that album that came out? Um, it was called like Red Hot Plus Cool or something. It was like this album. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of, of, of hip hop artists and jazz artists doing these collaborations. That was a Stolen Moments record. Uh, yes. Yes. It was like a thing Impulse did with it was like a benefit album for, for AIDS and HIV. Uh, right. Research, and, yeah. Right, and it had so the main disc, and then it had a second like bonus disc of Branford Marsalis doing this with his group, like the whole thing. Yeah. That was the first time I'd heard this. Um, and then, of course, you know, after I heard that, I I went and listened to the original one. Um, but yeah, this was my uh, well, my first exposure to Coltrane himself. I had heard kind of Blue before that. Um, but uh yeah brian i'm just curious like what was your sort of order of hearing coltrane I mean, like what was your first exposure to coltrane oh my first exposure to coltrane was through um a tandem miles davis record which was the 58 sessions um that was one of the first cds that i bought back in the 80s and it was um it was a, a, a Miles Davis record, but Coltrane was on it and loved what Coltrane was doing. And then very soon, if you get into jazz and you start to really study it, you will run across um, the name of John Coltrane and it, and it just doesn't go away. It's, it's kind of like crashing into the Himalayas or something. I mean, it's just, you, you cannot get past John Coltrane. You, you must study John Coltrane, that kind of thing. And uh, so I did. I, I went and I got um, several of his CDs. Um, I, I got Impressions. I got Coltrane Sound. I got Giant Steps. I got Blue Train. And, and you know, those were sort of my normal diet for a long time of just trying to understand what Coltrane was doing. And, um, and later I got into Love Supreme. Not much later, but a little bit later I got into Love Supreme. And, um, and then I... I I had to go back and try to piece the puzzle together because Coltrane's uh, sound had changed so much between Giant Steps and A Love Supreme. And for those of you who don't know, Coltrane definitely wrestled with um, drug addiction on and off uh, throughout the sort of um, mid-50s and into um, sort of the early 60s. And then he finally started to, after sort of almost really overdosing in a way, um, he decided, I'm done with this. I'm going to really devote my life towards more spirituality. And it, he embarked on this giant spiritual quest. And A Love Supreme is um, basically the first in a series of sort of religious-based, um, spiritually-based, I should say, yeah, um, I, yeah. recordings you know, that, um, that Coltrane did. And um, and so it is a landmark recording and generally regarded as one of uh, his greatest records uh, and one of the greater recordings in all of the jazz canon. Um, you'd find a, um, a, a huge percentage of those 
uh, Coltrane records would be in sort of, yeah, you must have this record. You, your John Coltrane collection will naturally just grow. But um, Love Supreme is such an amazing um, piece. And it's only in four parts, you know, that you basically have part, parts one, two, three, and four. And um, some of them are upwards of uh, slightly over 20 minutes long. Um, Pursuance is like that. Um, you know, especially if you get the new deluxe edition of A Love Supreme, you, you get some uh, live recordings of them doing it. And uh, it's just fascinating. And strange enough, this is one of the records that Coltrane never really did live with a group. Like, he didn't tour it like you would think of touring a record. He never yeah. did Love Supreme like that. He only actually did one real concert of it. Yeah. Uh, and it was overseas. So, um, so anyway, yeah, I mean what do you say about it it's just it's an amazing record and it's deeply spiritual and it's and it's very somber in its um in its uh approach it's very serious Train is very sober and he's being serious about being sober and it, it comes across in this record yeah mitch what do you think of a love supreme what was your yeah. well let me ask you the same question first i asked brian so i'm just kind of curious what your f- first exposure to coltrane was uh, I, I would say that the very first time that I, I heard John Coltrane, it probably would have been as a kid hearing Blue Train, not even knowing who he was, but I just remember hearing that, that opening, you know, that opening sound of that, that song as a kid. And, um, that's my, my earliest memory, but as far as being, you know, a grown man, so to speak, and, and listening to to Coltrane, it would probably be this record because I I knew you know just from the cover and and you know sort of the legend that he was is that I I kind of wanted to listen to this record and I I would I would think that I, I listened to it maybe as I I started working you know in in retail music kind of like we were and then. And then gradually began to kind of, you know, go past that. But it, it would probably have been this record, um, A Love Supreme, when I it maybe was about about 22. Um, that was that was this is probably like the first record of his that I sat and listened to in its entirety. You know, and I was just kind of on a spin where I was I was really digging Impulse Records all together as a label. But I mean, obviously, this is one of those records you can't look past. You know, when you when you think about that record label. Um, but going, you know, on to, you know, a lot of what this record kind of was influenced by and, and back to something that Brian was talking about, you know, obviously John had had issues with drugs, but but looking into his life, he also had issues with alcohol and food, which is something I didn't know um, until, you know, we really started looking at the record, you know, with respect to the book, he he definitely had issues with with his eating, um, to where it was it was affecting his health. I mean, overeating as well as eating a lot of, you know, I guess what you would consider heavy, salty, starchy foods or or soul food even or you know kind of comfort foods. I mean, John had that bad apparently, where it was really affecting his health in the negative. And I think, you know, along with the drugs and the drinking, you know, which, you know, the, the drugs and drinking eventually were one of the things that affected his career also, where Miles Davis apparently had to fire him 
because he just be, had become unreliable, you know, where he would show up late and not show up at all the gigs. And um, this record, I, I think, was him trying to come to terms with a lot of issues that he had personally, as, as well as, you know, sort of a, a cry for help even, where he was saying, you know, you know, God, what am I supposed to do? You know, what am I, what's my purpose? Am, am I, you know, you know, destined to keep doing this or do I need to just lay it all down? I mean, you know, I don't know what to do. And I, I really think that his, his plight is something that a lot of people like have to eventually come to, whether you believe in God or not. And that's not something I'm, I'm trying to went to, but, you know, for him, it was one of those things where it's like, I, I really need some answers, so to speak. And, and I think a lot of this album is what that's about, you know, where it's, it's his sort of spiritual talk with God in, in, in the form of a musical record. And I think that's one of the things that, that really helped propel the record success where so many people have been there, so to speak, and have asked that question. You know whether they were, you know, musician or not or whatever. And uh, you know, originally, I, I think when when the record was was finished, the people at Impulse, including John, thought that it might sell like about what thirty thousand copies. I, I I think that's what I read. And then eventually, you know, just a few years later, it, it sold like half a million, which was almost unheard of, you know, for a jazz record like this. I mean. You know, it was, it was something that really struck a chord with so many people. And I think it was a big shock to to Coltrane and the jazz community as a whole. I mean, you know, it just kind of took everybody by by complete surprise, which which was really great. You know, I mean, it was something that that was really, I think, a positive for, for music, especially jazz, but for music as a whole, where you had something that was really new and, and really cool that you know, would help influence so many generations after this, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. As far as like the, um, the listening experience of this album, it's really, it's a really awesome listening experience because on a album like blue train, you know, it's really easy to just sit down and listen to one track and you feel like, you know, okay, that was one track and it's open and closed. Um, listening to this of just sitting down and listening to the whole album, it's like listening to a symphony. You know, mm. it's 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 really yeah, it does give you sort of a spiritual experience listening to the entire thing just from beginning to end. Yeah. And it does yeah. feel like an entirely cohesive like one piece of music, even though it's in four parts. Yes. Um Yeah. So let's check out the first track which is we're going to listen to the second and third parts so the second part is titled resolution um it starts with this really interesting bass solo full of like fifths almost like you know kind of almost like a precursor to black sabbath or something <laughs> i don't know it's like <laughs> all these fifths on the bass and um and it goes into this uh this theme you know of the second part um, which is I just think it's an awesome theme uh, in the saxophone the resolution theme um, yes. 
Uh, anybody have anything to say before we play this? Nah, let it rip. All right, man. Yeah, yeah. let's go. <laughs> and he lets it rip. Let's let's uh, listen to the second part of Love Supreme. This is Resolution. heard resolution and we're going to move on to part three pursuance um and this one uh starts with a really long drum solo uh and and then it goes into the pursuance theme so uh i think all these sections kind of are built off these main themes um Mm -hmm. what do you guys think of this part of it i don't know right well, I mean, again, it's, it is, it's, it, this is one of those things that unlike, um, most jazz records, which is a collection of songs, this is a concept album. 
in every sense of the word that you can think of 70s stadium rock bands like Pink Floyd and, and so on and so forth, this is a concept album. Mm-hmm. And I always listen to it as a concept album. So what I usually try to do is if I'm in the mood for Love Supreme, that means that I'm in the mood for the entire work from start to finish. Yeah. That's the way I like to listen to a Love Supreme. That's when yeah. I feel like I've done it all. It's, it's, and it, and it's, it's exactly the same way that we would think of as a symphony. Um, you know, for me, Brahms' first symphony is certainly that way. Um, you know, I don't care what else is on the program that night. That symphony, whenever it's played, and I listen to it from beginning to end, I'm done. I've, I, my plate is completely full, and I have eaten everything, and I'm ready to just like you know let that sit for a while. And um, and this is what uh, Love Supreme is like for me as well. When you listen to it from start to end, and really, really listen to it, it's a very rewarding experience and you can hear all of the interplays. But there is lots of thematic unity. Um, the, the interplay between the band is so present. It's, it's, you can feel the conviction of the playing and their attention to the, the subtleties of what's being said. No matter who is voicing any, any particular melodic line at any moment, this is a band that is highly in tune and they are working outside of themselves for a greater good. And, and that came across in the recording session. I just think it's a magical record. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I know we're not going to listen to the first track on this record, The Acknowledgement, but, but there's so much about that first song. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm fine with us not listening to that because so many people know that song, but there's so much about that song where we can almost spend the whole show even talking about that one piece. It's, it's such a powerful piece where the, the modern part where, where Coltrane is, is chanting over and over, a love supreme, a love supreme. I mean, he, he like overdubbed his voice, you know, a number of times where you can kind of hear, it's almost like him sitting beside himself about three or four times, just chanting that song. And it's, it's almost like the, the culmination of all the things that were going on inside of him, all the different issues and problems he had suddenly sort of focusing on, you know, that one mantra of love supreme to kind of bring him in the focus and, and take him away sort of from the worry and, and the dreariness of whatever was bothering him. And I mean, that's kind of one of the things I look at with this record. There's so much going on underneath the surface of the music that that I love. And and like Brian was saying, the, the the conceptual conceptual sort of element of this record, it's a lot like like you said, like a Pink Floyd record where you, you have to sit and listen to the whole thing and, and go into it and, and dig into it and, and there's so much that comes out that that I think is even though like you said it, it at times is really somber and serious there's a sense of joy that comes out from this record too that, you know, that I feel personally. I mean, I think a lot of people did too, you know, where, where you see the success of, of how the record did. Um, and I think the record means different things to different people, you know, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just such a really, really tremendous recording throughout that, that I mean, it just it blows my mind to go back and look 
at what he was doing um, and what he what he was able to accomplish um, as a man. I mean, I, I really love John Coltrane a lot. I mean, for what he, he did and the, and the influence he brought, you know, inside and outside of music, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of cool things to talk about on this record. I mean, uh, you were talking about the first track, which we're not going to hear on the last track, which we're not going to hear the psalm. Um, the, one of the really interesting things he did is he wrote a, a spiritual poem, which was printed in the album. Yeah. And then he composed his his saxophone line to the speech rhythms of the poem. So essentially he's yes. he's playing the poem on his saxophone without yes. actually reading it. Yeah. Um, the, the, earlier before the show, there's the there's a BBC documentary I talked to you about where they they lay that out, and as he's playing, they show on the screen like the words to the poem going across the screen. Now, I'm I'm gonna repost that. I mean it it's really powerful to see those words and as they line up with the notes and him playing. I mean I I felt myself getting really emotional looking at that. Wow, I was like, that's cool. What is he doing? That is, that's so brilliant. You know? And I mean, that's like I said, that's one of the little things that's underneath the surface of what you see or hear, I should say, when you first listen to this record, I, I didn't realize that until I really started studying it, that like you said, it was like a, a like a poem that was sort of dedicated to the, the tradition of, 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 sort of, I guess what you would call, you know, black preachers or ministers and, and how it's, it's like a sort of like an, an homage or a thanking God. And, um, again, like I said, I mean, you know, whether you believe in God or not, there's, there's something such, such a deep spiritual movement in this record. You know, I mean, I mean, they, there's a church in San Francisco now where John Coltrane is a saint you know, literally, you know, was was canonized, the miracles, all that. And I mean, one of these days, it's, it's, that is on my bucket list. I have to go to that church. It's not a really big church, but it's it's a church, I mean, and they are really serious. It's not like something, you know, where you show up and it's a joke. I mean, it's, they are very serious. And I mean, that's that's one of the legacies that that he's kind of left, where people were so moved by this record you know, that they felt the need to establish a church where he's the same. I mean, it's, it's incredible. You know, <laughs> that doesn't really happen with a lot of musicians, you know, so. Uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> um, yeah, let's just check this out. This last track from A Love Supreme that we're going to listen to. This is the third part of A Love Supreme. This is Pursuance. <laughs> Thank you. 
just heard pursuance of john coltrane from a love supreme and that's going to do it for episode number 44 of the 1000 recordings podcast you can email us at 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com you can join us on twitter at twitter.com slash 1000 rp you can join us on facebook where mitch will uh, probably repost that documentary he was talking about on john coltrane you can uh, watch that and uh, you can go to our website at 1000rp.blogspot.com where you can find links to all the albums that we listen to, uh, Amazon links. If you use those links, we'll get a little kickback. And there's also some information on the site about how you can support the show if you enjoy listening to it. Um, next week, what do we have next week? One more John Coltrane or, record. Or next uh, time, yeah. Yeah, I should say, yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, John Coltrane and Johnny Hartman, record um, they did together, which is it, it's it's just like smoke. I mean, that record is really good. Um, the comedian harmonist, harmonist, how do you want to pronounce that? Which um, that's different. I'm I'm not really familiar with that, but um, that should be interesting. It looks uh, like looks it's like a, a barbershop barbershop quartet. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that could be good. And then Ry Cooter. Uh, Guitarist, uh, Paradise and Lunch. Uh, oh, it's a great record. Cool. Yeah, so that's it for next week. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, again, thanks, Brian, for coming on, man. It's, um, it's great to have you on, especially on this show. I'm certainly not yeah. an expert on jazz, and you brought some really cool insight to these records. So, yeah. Very insightful, yes, definitely. Oh, thanks, guys. Well, I had to do it. And, uh, yeah, if you want me to come back and do it, just let me know. I'll, I'll, if I can make it happen, I will. Cool. Cool. All right, man. Well, uh, yeah, until next time, um, we'll see you 
then uh, maybe there'll be you know more brass music for you in the background i don't know <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah until next time uh we'll see everybody later all right